Hear the word of the Lord, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, wait, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Hope you're well today. What a beautiful, beautiful day, isn't it? Oh, it's gorgeous. So good to worship with all of you this morning. We're starting a brand new series in the book of Revelation. And honestly, to be real with you, I'm a little pumped. I'm like both pumped about this new series. I'm also a little bit nervous. 
actually a little more than a little bit nervous, but it's going to be okay. We're going to dive into this book together. You guys will forgive me, hopefully, prayerfully you'll forgive me if um, you don't like what I have to say. Hopefully we'll dive into this book together and hopefully you guys will kind of, will be patiently seeing what God has to reveal to us in this scripture. Guys, we're diving into the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And I'm pumped about going through this book because it has so much that we can glean from. It has so much meat, so much that we should be receiving from this book. It's a book meant to encourage the believers. But I'm also nervous about going through this book because it has so much baggage with it. I mean, it's a difficult book to begin with, but to add to that all this baggage and different teachings that you may have heard about this book makes it really complicated. I mean, there's been no other book that has led to so many different interpretations and ideas, uh, images and imagery from the book of Revelation has permeated our common language and culture. Terms like Armageddon and Apocalypse that we use in common culture and language come from this book. The idea of heaven being a place where people sit on clouds and play harps, that idea and image comes from this book. The Four Horsemen, St. Peter at the Pearly Gates, Number of the Beast, Grapes of Wrath, Scarlet Women, street paved with gold, and so much of cultural references that we just know are in movies or in books that we read, or we just kind of can talk about, you might not know it, but came from this book. Yet with all this commonality in our culture, it may be one of the most neglected books in the New Testament, at least, least one of the least preached books in, in mainstream churches. Or you go the other way, and it's the book that's preached on all the time in the church. Now, I kind of suspect this for two reasons. First, it's complex and mysterious. I mean, this book is just mysterious. In the way it's written, it's, it's full of strange metaphors and bizarre beasts and symbolic numbers and allusions to the Old Testament and imagery. It's quite often, as a result, kind of leads to the casual reader in our current day and time to be like, huh? What are you talking about? I mean, we might give it a try. We're like, okay, I should read the end. We should read the last book of the Bible, right? So we go for it, but then we don't get very far. We kind of scratch our heads in confusion and quickly just go back to, I'm going to go back to reading Mark. It's a lot easier. I mean, that's one of the reasons the book of Revelation is so neglected. Another has to do with the strange fascination it seems to hold for some of, you, some of those people you might describe as like prophecy nuts. Now, I'm not saying this is a negative way. I'm not trying to be... Um, try to be mean or try to say it in a demeaning way, but there are people out there that you might know of who kind of love and soak and want to read and, and talk about and see conspiracy theories everywhere, and there's codes, and if you read the fifth letter backwards ten times, it says a whole different message from God, right? And you know the, the ones who have tribulation timelines or they're interested in finding the identity of the Antichrist by looking at political candidates or world leaders. They might have a whole bunch of good stockpiled ready to go somewhere just in case it all happens. And they believe the zombie apocalypse is actually the apocalypse and Armageddon. You guys know what I'm talking about. And once again, not hating on those people, just saying that they profess to have a right way of understanding something that is so difficult to understand in a way that seems to lead to paranoia and fear. And as often as not, these are the only folks that we know who claim to truly understand the book of Revelation. And so we kind of simply avoid the book altogether, perhaps for fear that we will be as fearful as they are. And so it seems we swing between two extremes. Either we find the book so difficult and perplexing that we never read it, or we find those who think they understand the book so uh, this difficult book that they read it overboard and they try to get all these messages out of it. But either way, Revelation has been underread misused and misunderstood, misinterpreted, especially in contemporary American evangelicalism for many years. 
And I believe that the widespread fear and phobia towards this book in the Bible is a tragic mistake and the church is poor for it. This book is a gift that God has given us. And I think we should do justice by it, by diving into it together. Now, guys, I'm going to say one thing very clearly. I say, I want us to go on this journey as we dive into this. I don't want you to sit here and passively just say, all right, Lawrence, interpret everything for me. I'm not going to do that. I want you to read and hear and learn. One of the things I've said over and over again at Waypoint Church is that if I preach something false, that is on me. And God will have a conversation with me. We'll have a conversation in the future. And God is going to say, why did you do that for? But I'm going to tell you this right now. If you believe something that I teach without testing it yourself against Scripture and his word and your community, then that's on you. Do you guys hear that? Because I want you to know something, guys. I am completely fallible. I will never in any way profess that what I speak is the infallible word of God. I'll profess that I will try to, with everything inside my heart, try to preach what the word of God says, but I am a fallible man. So I want you guys to always, for yourself, challenge what the scripture says and challenge what the preacher says. So if you go to another church too, one day, don't just say, oh, the preacher said this, so this is the correct way. No, look at what the scripture says. That's a side note. You guys with me? This book was written towards the end of the first century by the Apostle John. And it's a book for the whole church in every age, beginning with the generation living at the time of its writing. It's not a volume of future history giving us encrypted messages about international politics and global war. It's not a coded communication from a heavenly command and control center, allowing only those who know the code to understand world events, as reported each night on CNN. It's rather, as Derek Thomas puts it, a series of pictures, graphic images, designed to convey in glorious technicolor and in three dimensions the wonderful fact that Jesus Christ is Lord in the church and in the world. Did you hear that? This book is not this mysterious communication given from God to be like, ooh, only people who know the secret code, who can have a decipher code and pen and all this kind of stuff, have spy gear to really know what it means, and oh, there's secret instructions for you to do. No, this is, a, this is a book that affirms what the rest of the Bible has said, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he rules and he reigns. When I was a senior in high school, um, the Left Behind series was getting published and it was sweeping through the church in America. It got published in 1995, so that gives you a little bit of a hint when I went to high school. I just turned 40, and it was kind of like, I'm like, whoa, I'm 40 now. Just letting you know that. It's just a weird feeling that I have in my heart right now. Try to process that so you guys can pray for me. And so I wanted to learn about this crazy book, Book of Revelation. So I went to a pastor friend of mine that I greatly respected, and I said, here, Pastor Hopper, Will you do me a favor? Will you do a Sunday school class? Will you just teach us about the book of Revelation? I'll gather the kids together. We'll, we will come, and we'll come every Sunday morning. Can you just, we want to have a Sunday school class about this book. So he said, cool, I'll do it. So I gathered my friends together, and we showed up for the Sunday school class. I was pumped. I read the book of Revelation again. I reread Left Behind. I was ready to go. So we show up in class, and my pastor said, all right, everybody turn to Genesis chapter 1. So I was like, okay, chapter 1. And we spent the next hour in the book of Genesis. And at the end of the time, it was a good time. I was like, oh, this is really cool information. But I walked up to my pastor and I confronted him. I said, dude, we're supposed to be in Revelation. What are you doing? You, did you forget? Did you think we're doing a study in Genesis? A book of Revelation, man, it's the opposite end. And he looked at me and said, you'll never understand anything about the book of Revelation without first understanding the rest of the Bible. 
especially the book of Genesis. You can't make sense of the end if the whole ending is drawn on the rest of the book. Guys, those words that my pastor taught me, they were such good words. Too many times we try to make this book a standalone book. It isn't. It's a part of the whole Bible. You must know the rest of the story to understand this letter written by John. According to the United Bible Society, the book of Revelation has 404 verses, but also has 676 Old Testament allusions in it. So what it makes for an average of one to two Old Testament allusions per verse. Do you see what I'm saying? If you don't know the Old Testament, then you have no way of understanding and understanding this book in the New Testament. It draws on completely and fully from the Old Testament. So John wrote this book while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Patmos is a barren place, a rocky little island, uh, belongs to a group of about 50 islands in the Mediterranean, about 10 miles long, it's its, its widest point, about five or six miles. Barren, rocky place. It's an Asian sea off the coast of Asia, Asia Minor, really just a kind of nondescript little place. And banishment to such remote islands was a common form of Roman punishment. If the crime was political, the person banished to the island would have a certain amount of freedom to do whatever he wanted to do and maybe move about. But if the banishment was criminal, then he was a part of what we called like a, a, a chain gang or a work crew. So here was John having committed what would probably have been defined by the Roman government as a criminal offense. John was approaching maybe close to 90 years of age, serving, working, breaking rocks or something on this island of Patmos as a part of a penal colony. An early Christian tradition teaches that he was banished under the leadership of Domitian when Domitian or Domitian was reigning in the Roman Empire. Anyone who was banished lost all their civil rights and lost all their property. And I'm not sure he had any property to lose, and I'm not sure how many civil rights he had, but he didn't have them, he lost them, and here he was in the mines working as a criminal, as a 90-something-year-old man. Since he had been leader of the hated Christians and probably the last of the apostles still around, by this time he's writing around 96 AD, and banishment to him was hard labor. So William Ramsey, a historian, says John's banishment would be, quote, preceded by scourging, marked by perceptual, uh, per perpetual fetters or chains, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleep on bare ground, a dark prison cave, work under the lash of a military overseer. You see, John came to this amazing vision, this book, while suffering, and it was an encouragement to him. He's also writing this to people who are being persecuted and who are currently suffering. Under the reign of this emperor, the, the persecution of Christians ramped up. They were being tried as the enemy of the state because they wouldn't acquiesce to Caesar. They wouldn't affirm Caesar as higher than Jesus. The churches that John wrote to were being persecuted, so this letter was sent as an encouragement to them. This vision that encouraged John then made encourage his people. And what did his suffering persecuted people need more than anything else? They needed a vision of who Jesus is. My people make no mistake that this is what the book of Revelation is. It is a vision of Jesus Christ glorified. It is our reality, our promise, our hope, our destiny, our encouragement, our now. Jesus reigns in victory. Guys, it's no accident that this whole book of Revelation is bookended by visions of Jesus. At the end of the book, we see Eden restored and a vision of Jesus proclaiming his coming. 
And at the beginning of the book, we see a vision of showing us his majesty and his mercy. Guys, what did the persecuted church need more than anything else? What did John need in the midst of his persecution, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his trial? What he needed more than anything else was to see Jesus. To see Jesus. If you skip ahead for a moment, and if you read the chapters 2 and 3, you were to look at the struggles that were plaguing the seven churches to which John writes. And you see an array of issues that are kind of tragically all too familiar to us in this day and age. There's apathy and unbelief, discouragement and compromise. There's persecution, there's suffering, there's heresy, there's immorality. And you read these seven letters in chapter two and three, you kind of wonder, is John just basically writing to us now? Same troubles, same challenges, same sin. But what is so important, what I want to help us to see as we begin to read Revelation together in these following weeks, is that John does not lead with a diagnosis of the problem. He didn't start with a litany of difficulties and struggles and sins. He leads with the treatment. He leads with the cure. He leads us directing us to the word, to the Lord Jesus, who speaks and deals with our deepest sins and struggles in our lives. John shows us the exalted, transcendent, reigning Christ who is full of tenderness and compassion towards his people. If we're to fend off apathy and unbelief, if we're to resist moral compromise and fight theological error and find the grace to endure and the strength to press on when things are difficult, if in other words we're to face the same challenges that the seven churches faced in chapters two and three, then we, like them, need the whole Christ We need a vision of who Jesus is, his glory as well as his grace, his majesty as well as his mercy, both together. Too often in our day and age, we don't want the whole Christ. We want the tame and gentle and lowly Jesus, but we are intimidated and scared of the transcendent, powerful, willful, and purposeful Jesus. And me, the whole Christ, the transcendent and the tender, the majestic and the merciful Christ, will have a profound effect on us. If you look at verse 17, it says, what, hap- what happened to John when he first saw the exalted Christ? It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. John is laid low. When he comes face to face with this Jesus, he's laid low. He's like Isaiah in chapter 6. If you remember, if you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. And all of a sudden, Isaiah goes, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. There's a glory to the person of Christ that defies all attempts to treat him casually. He is not comfortable. He's not not something that we can casually see, and that makes no difference to us. And those who are shown something of his glory, in the scriptures at least, do not generally find themselves kind of basking in this warm, ooey-gooey feeling. No, they tend to find themselves face down, trembling in dirt. John, like the prophet Isaiah, when he was drawn into the presence of glory, responds in holy awe. And yet the Christ, yet Jesus, exalted Jesus, reaches out his hand, doesn't strike him down, but lifts him up. What a moment that must have been for John. And can you imagine it? John hears this mighty voice, sounds like a trumpet speaking, but then it comes tenderness, it comes lowliness. It says, fear not, don't be afraid, and lifts him up. 
The point of our passage is making is that it's not only this kind of Jesus that's majestic and merciful Christ, it's the whole Christ who can shatter fear and comfort a trembled heart. It's only the whole Jesus who puts us to the dust, who's so mighty and so exalted, who can ever truly raise us up. Guys, here's the issue, is that we sometimes want a lowly Jesus only, but a lowly Jesus is not powerful enough, he's not awe-inspiring enough. But when he's both, when he's king and majestic, when he's also low and a pauper, when he's both king and chooses to be a pauper, then we have a king who is powerful enough, worthy of majesty and praise, who chose to lower himself to be in relationship with us. That is enduring comfort. We need Jesus, the great king, Jesus, the sovereign God, Jesus, the Lord of glory. He can satisfy like no other. He can speak quietness and confidence to our hearts when this world and Satan attacks us. He's the powerful one we know that can stand up to any attack. He's the one that John sees. So the two points I want you to see in this passage as we see verses 9 through 20 of the rest of this passage, I want you to see the majesty of Christ, then I want you to see the mercy of Christ. So as we dive into these two themes, we see that the majesty of Christ there first is, is this incredible vision John sees in verse 13, where he says he saw one like the Son of Man. Now the phrase Son of Man was Jesus' favorite kind of self-designation in the Gospels. John, what he immediately recognized, I hope, is talking about Jesus, but there's more to the phrase than that. You guys ever, like, online, when you, like, click a link onto your passage, like, if there's, like, a, if you have an email, then you click a link, and it takes you to another website? Well, I want you to think of it this way. If, when you see that phrase, Son of Man, written in the book of Revelation, John is trying to get you to click on a link. Does that make sense? And if you click on that link, and all of a sudden, this phrase, Son of Man, takes you to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. So Jesus, who calls himself the Son of Man, John, who's proclaiming this is the Son of Man, you click on the link, and all of a sudden, this is what shows up. It says, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel's describing the son of man as the great king who is invested with royal dominion by the ancient of days, God the Father. And so straight away, simply by using that phrase, one like the son of man, John wants us to understand that Jesus, that the Jesus John sees is God's ordained ruler. He is the mighty king. But then he uses the phrase ancient of days. And there's something unusual about this ruler. If you look at verse 14, it says, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Which, by the way, um, I don't know why. This is something I've always wanted. I don't have many gray hairs right now. I don't. I wish I did, actually. Isn't that weird? I wish I did because I've always wanted like, like streaky, streaky? Is that weird to say streaky? I always wanted gray hair in my head. I always felt like it looked cool. I always wanted like I wanted to have silver hair, right? I always just felt like it would make me look older and more wise. Is that correct? Yes. Those people who have silver hair, isn't it, isn't it true that you're wiser than the rest of us? Yes. <laughs> I always felt like if I had silver hair, I would look wise. Now, I'm not saying this is silver. It says white, but I just, in my mind, I'm like, silver hair feels like it's wise. Just throwing that out there in case you ever, if you ever see me show up with a lot of gray hair one day, it's because I intentionally dyed it. No. <laughs> it says, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Now, John is still borrowing from Daniel chapter 7 here. Only this time he's using language that doesn't refer to the Son of Man. Remember, the Son of Man went to the Ancient of Days 
Daniel 7, 9 says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. So do you see, John does something weird here. He blends the description of the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. He blends them together. And he makes a vital point here, intentionality in doing this. Jesus, God's appointed king, is Jesus in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. He's the God-man. That's why later in verse 17, if you look down to verse 17, Jesus says, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. Now back in verse 4 and again in verse 8, it is God the Father who has said that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come. What we see is Jesus making the very same claim because he is the same and equal to the Father and the Spirit. Do you see what he's doing here? John's professing over and over again that this is the Trinity, that God is the very same in nature. God is the very same as Jesus. Jesus is actually God. Now, this is so weird. I know you guys are like, this doesn't make much sense. This is why I don't like this. Go back to Mark. And I get that. I understand that. But the man, Christ Jesus, is God, the eternal Son. And this is why John falls out of his feet as though dead. Because he's the actual incarnate of God of glory. He's the incarnate of the ancient of days. Guys, we cannot mistake this. Jesus is, he's, he's low. He, he's humbled himself. He came down. But the, the most amazing thing about that humility is because he was God himself who came down. Not just a good man who lowered himself. Do you hear that? The beauty of his humility is that he's the creator of the universe. He's the creator of this massive galaxy and everything in it. He controls it, he willed it, he spoke it into being. And his humility is that that God, that power, decided to be low. Sometimes we, we pre-lower Jesus before he lowered himself. And we don't need to do that. Hope you see that it's precisely why Jesus said, John Meats is able to dispel fear the way he does and speak peace into our hearts because it means, after all, that Jesus is in charge. He's God. And I wonder sometimes if we've forgotten that. Like, Jesus is in charge. Maybe we need to keep saying to ourselves in every circumstance, who sits on the throne? Remember the one who sits there. Remember the Son of Man, the Lord of glory. He's in charge. He's got this, and he's got me. Maybe you need to be reminded of that. Maybe you need to be reminded that the one in charge of the throne of the world is not random chance and circumstance. It's not you. Maybe you need to be reminded that today, right now, who sits enthroned is Jesus who willfully lowered himself. He reigns. It says his eyes like flames of fire. He doesn't stop there. He's still building on Daniel this time. Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, John says that Jesus' eyes like flames of fire. Eyes, the point is, isn't really that hard to grasp. Simply Jesus sees it all. One commentary I think puts it very helpful. He says this. John is declaring that Jesus Christ is not only pure like fire, he is purifying. Fire illuminates and penetrates, but also cleanses, burns away impurities. The eyes of the glorified Lord not only look at us, they look through us. Penetrating the masks and the veils behind which we hide our true being. That is so good to know, he says. Very scary and painful, but so liberating. Jesus can look right through all our facades and see all the junk that is ruining my life and burn it away. 
Now, I love this. This same commentary I was reading does something unusual for a Bible commentary. He, uh, in the middle of his commentary, this commentary actually begins to pray. In his actual note, in his study note here, he actually starts praying, Oh, Lord, he prays, look at me. Look into me. Shine your purifying light and burn off all that keeps me from you and your wholeness. There's a prayer to pray in the presence of the one who has eyes like flames of fire, who not only looks at you, but looks through you and sees and knows. Isn't that what we do all the time? Don't we put on masks all the time? Because fundamentally, we're so afraid that if we're truly known, that no one will truly love us. And so we put on masks, but, but something inside of us, something innate in our hearts, desperately desires to be known, desperately desires that one day, do I not have to put a mask on? Do I not have to keep on wearing this makeup? Do I, can I just be me and still be okay with it? And we don't ever do that because we're so scared that if we ever truly did, if we were ever truly known, we're scared that we can barely even love ourselves. How could anyone else love us? But Jesus' eyes are fire. He sees through the mask that we pretend. He sees through the facade that we have. He sees through the makeup, and he sees you. And he's the only one that can see you and know you fully and still choose to love you. His feet are like burnished bronze. Do you guys remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2? Anybody? If you said, yeah, I remember all, every bit of it. Good job. <laughs> so impressed. <laughs> But there he saw a great statue, right? The statue represents all the kings of the world, the mighty empires of the world. But Daniel 2, 23 tells us the statue has feet of clay and iron. It's an unstable compound. It's, it cannot possibly bear the weight of the mighty empires pressing down upon it. All the kingdoms of the world, we're being told, are, be, are built with feet of clay. But Jesus is a king with feet of burnished bronze. His kingdom is unassailable. Daniel 7.14 says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it leads us to Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes, in the son of man in whom there is no salvation. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord his God. His feet are like bronze. In other words, his stable, unassailable, cannot be knocked down. Guys, neither Republican nor Democratic can build an enduring kingdom. Just in case you haven't realized that by now. When the world is shaking by bomb blasts and regime changes, here's what we need to see. Here's where we need to look to find our refuge. in the son of man whose feet are like burnished bronze. Wherever he plants his feet, there he will stand, unshakable, immovable, and he will reign, and his kingdom is forever. No matter the wickedness of man, no matter the rise and fall of this world's kingdom, his kingdom is unassailable. Why do we still put our hope in politics and world leaders? Our leader has feet of bronze. Then it talks about his voice. I love he goes, his hair, his eyes, his feet. It's like a dating website. That's weird. <laughs> Talking about this guy, physical description. But then his voice in verse 17, it says his voice was like the roar of many waterfalls. There's something awe-inspiring when you see a true great waterfall and you hear it as, as you see the water tumbling over and you listen to it, it sounds like thunder. You can hear it from a distance as you get closer and closer to it, it gets louder and louder. And when you're actually next to a giant waterfall, all you can hear is the waterfall. And you just stand amazed. You can't say anything through it. If you try to speak, your voice will be drowned out in it. 
It demands, it's, it's captivating, it's arresting, it's compelling, it's all-consuming. And then it says, look down in verse 16, John changes the metaphor, but he's still talking about the voice of Christ. It says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We've been told here that speech of Christ is an instrument of warfare. Like a Roman gladius, a, a razor-sharp sword in, in fighting, an instrument of conquering. The voice of Christ cuts and pierces and, and wounds. It's a weapon to shatter unbelief and to slay sin. Guys, what the voice of Christ is being compared to is this overwhelming, conquering, powerful waterfall that can overwhelm us with its goodness and its majesty, but it's also sharp enough as a useful weapon in battle. Now, what is the voice of Christ? I would say for us, it's the word of God preached, expounded, and written down for us. It's also the gathering of the saints as he speaks to the people in worship and in fellowship together. It's beautiful. It's trembling. It's life-changing. It can attack sin and unbelief. His voice is incredible. His His hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice... Then we think about the majesty of Christ, we see his face. Verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. There's a radiance, a brilliance, a pristine purity to Jesus Christ. Looking at Jesus was like John says, it was like trying to look directly at the sun in the middle of the day where there's no clouds around, just to look directly at the sun. You just can't do it or you shouldn't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> just in case you hear this, you're like, oh, let's go do this. No, that will hurt your eyes. There's optometrists in here. It just can't be done. His, his glory his glory is so amazing. John falls at his feet as though dead in front of it. It's incredible. It's overwhelming. His circuits are overloaded. He shuts down in such presence of such majesty. Yet there's a link here kind of to, to the second theme that I want to go to, to the mercy of Christ with his face shining upon us. So right here, this shining, blazing, brilliant face of Jesus, it's turned. It's turned toward John. I don't want you to miss that. It's dazzling. I, he can't even look upon it. It's too bright. It's incredible. But it's because it's, it's so bright and so incredible because it's turned, his face is facing, it's turned toward John. And if you remember the words that Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, we say it often, we've heard it, there's a song, the Lord bless you, that song. What's the central blessing being offered there? The central image, the central blessing of that song is the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord toward, turn his face toward you and give you peace. The essence of the blessed life, grace and peace flow from the shining face of God toward, turned towards us, not in wrath, but in mercy. And that's what John saw. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus turned to him. And the mercy of God in communion with Jesus Christ is this beautiful golden thread that runs throughout this whole book, runs throughout the whole Bible. If you look back for a moment to verses 12 and 13, for example, when John turned to first see Jesus, he saw him standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands, which according to Jesus in verse 20 are symbolic of the seven churches to which John has been commissioned to send his letter. Jesus, if you notice, is dressed like a priest. White robe with a golden sash. And like the Old Testament priests ministering in the temple who maintained a giant lampstand, 
that stood in the sanctuary. Here now is our great high priest tending to the lampstand that is his church. Do you get the imagery there? And notice that he said to walk amongst the lampstands. We're meant to think here not just of the temple, but the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, it says the Lord God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. An intimate fellowship with Adam and Eve. He was present with them. It was this first temple, the kind of temple our first fathers had fellowship with their maker. And here now in Revelation 1, we see Jesus, our high priest, who has restored broken fellowship with our great God, and he is present among his people. He is walking amidst his churches. He's not an absentee landlord. He is present among his people by his spirit. That's why the very first thing Jesus tells each of the churches when he writes to them in John, in chapter 2 and 3, later on in the book of Revelation, the first thing he says is, I know. He's present with them. He walks among the lampstands and he says, I know, I know your endurance, I know your struggles. I know your sin, I know your failure. I know your hard work, I know your love. I know your faith, I know your hypocrisy. I know your circumstances, I know. How powerful are those words? He says, I know. It means Jesus is not far away, out of sight and out of mind, aloof and hard to reach. He hasn't deserted us. He hasn't forgotten us. He promised to me that I am with you to the end of the age and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. My people, he is here. He's here. He is with the church. He walks amongst the church. He is amongst the church. Guys, he's on the other side of the veil. We can't see the other side of the veil. The veil is lifted for John just for a moment in this vision. He saw through the veil. But guys, in our moments, in our presence, and amongst our dealings, in our love, and in our hugs, in our weeping, in our crying, in our, in our being together, in our studying, he is here. He's here. That's what this vision is showing us as he walks amongst the lampstands, amongst the church. He is in the church. Up close and personal. And he can say to you, I know. I know. Maybe nobody else knows. Maybe you don't, wouldn't ever share this with anybody else. Maybe it's too hard. Maybe you're here today and that's what you need to hear is that he knows. Because you're not willing to share what hurt and what you've been through with anybody else. You're not willing to admit it to yourself. But his word for you this morning is that I know. I'm amidst you. I'm among you. I'm with you. I know, and you may come to me because he stands as a place of a priest. He's dressed as a priest amongst his church. He says, you can come to me and you have right, beautiful, righteous relationship with God. A similar point is made when Jesus explains the significance of the seven stars that he holds in his right hand. Verse 20 says, there's seven angels of the seven churches. Now, some people suggest that seven angels refers to the ministers of the churches, since each of the letters is addressed to an, each angel of the church. And that's certainly possible. The word for angel can mean messenger. But much more likely, since every other reference to angels in the book of Revelation means angelic beings and not earthly messengers, the seven angels here are the heavenly counterparts of the churches themselves. The angels stand for the churches in the presence of Christ in glory. Just as Jesus walks among the lampstands, among the churches by his spirit, just as he is here with us, so the churches are represented before the throne of Christ in glory by their angels, and he holds them in his hand. He holds the churches symbolically in his hand. He holds us in his hand. 
nothing can pry that grip. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no safer place from you than in the hands of God. My son the other day, um, I had a piece of candy, and he wanted it. Hudson thinks he's very strong and big. He's a powerful five-year-old. And I had it in my grip. And he's just like using his legs and hands and feet trying to pry my fingers open. You know, he's like bracing himself and trying to do all this stuff. Guys, can I tell you, no matter how hard he tries, he's not going to pry my grip open. Surprisingly enough, I'm stronger than a five-year-old. You know? And he can try all he wants. He just, just he's grunting. He's like, oh, I'm going to get bigger. I want that candy. And he wanted it more than anything else in the world. He wasn't getting it. There's nothing in this world more powerful than our God. Did you see the image and the vision? He's the ancient of days. He's one like the son of man. He's got bronze for his feet. His voice is like the waterfall. Guys, we need to know that Jesus is empowered. He is majestic. But he's also merciful. He's with us. And he holds a church in his hands. He says in verse 17, fear not. I'm the living one. Died and behold, I live forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. In the middle of the first century, Nero had been throwing Christians to the lions. In around AD 92, Domitian murdered 40,000 believers because they refused to accept his claim to be Dominus at the, I don't know Latin, dang it. <laughs> I didn't study Latin. <laughs> but he's Lord and God, as the phrase goes. And all they needed to do was very simply, all they needed to do was go to the temple of the imperial cult, toss some salt on the altar, dedicate the emperor, and say, Caesar is Lord. But they would not. 40,000 of them would not and were slaughtered because they cried out, Christ is Lord. He had claimed exclusive rights to that great title in their hearts, and that was their confession. Even in the face of death, Jesus is Lord. You can slay me, but I will never turn from submitting to the reign of the leadership of King Jesus. How did they come to have courage to stand firm when their life was on their line? What chased fear away from them? The same truth that can chase fear away for us in John. They knew that Jesus had already triumphed over death and Hades. The terrible prison of the grave has closed over him. He descended into death for us. He gave his life at Calvary and then broke the bonds of death and stole the keys of the prison and rose in glorious victory the third day. Now he holds the keys to death and Hades. Not Nero, not Caesar. Not cancer, not car accidents, not any of the unknowns of today or tomorrow. Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. My people, when the time comes, you can face down death and say with the apostle out of 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not slaves to the fear of death because Jesus holds the key of death in Hades and Jesus is our king and he reigns. And so John paints for us a full picture of Christ, Christ transcendent, exalted, majestic, reigning, before whom we bow in holy awe and Christ tender and abounding in covenant love, slow to anger, full of mercy, stooping down to touch us and say to us, I love you, I know you, and I am with you forever. What do the people need to hear who are being persecuted? What do the churches need to hear even now and today? 
that we have a majestic, transcendent king who reigns forevermore, who chose to humbly reach down and touch us and call us by name. May you see that, Jesus. And as we go through the next series, as we go through the whole book of Revelation, may you be reminded that that is the main message of the book of Revelation, that we have a majestic and merciful Christ Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, God, we thank you for your majesty. Jesus, we thank you that we... God, everything in us should make us fall to our faces before you. God, you are so glorious. You are so powerful. You are so majestic. We can't even begin to even describe to you enough praise and words and honor. God, even our thoughts and and how vast our imagination is doesn't even get a, a scratch to surface of the depth of who you are. And God, we repent of our sin that we often in our sinfulness think, God, you're just a slightly smarter version of ourselves. God, in our sinfulness, we think you're just like us, but maybe a little more powerful. God, you are nothing like us. You are so beyond us. But for some reason, you've loved us. You've called us to you. You've called us to family. You stooped down. You lowered yourself. You died upon the cross. You conquered death. So we can no longer have to fear the sting of death. God, you are merciful. And we praise you. God, fill our hearts with the new vision of who Jesus is. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.